0: Good afternoon, everybody. It is afternoon by about three minutes. Um, Welcome to the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and welcome to this Mondale Dialogues. Um, We're so glad to have you here. I'm Laura Bloomberg. I'm the dean of the Humphrey School, and I'm really proud for us to be kicking off this series of conversations about very, very important events of the day that have to do with um, what's happening on our national and and federal scene. Let me say something um, about the Mondale Dialogues themselves and then tell you a bit about the flow of this afternoon's events. Uh, When Professor Larry Jacobs and I first started talking about the Mondale Dialogues, we talked about a a series um, of discussions that really paid homage to the, the values that inspired Walter Mondale for decades in his professional career and continue to to drive what he has to say about our our public life. And they were the values of transparency, they were the values of accountability in government, the values of opportunity and justice in the world, and then also um, a values-based approach to how we work with other state actors across the globe, our international policy. And so we wanted to say, those. that's a broad base of information, but there are a lot of things that happen in that arena that not only did Walter Mindale give us guidance about and, no, and certainly has no shortage of opinions about, but that are also key issues that should inform all of us today regardless of political party or affiliation. They are the issues that are about what it means to be an American in the world today and how it means for what it means for us to navigate world affairs. So we launched the Mondale Dialogues and they will in fact be, as you'll see from the stage set up here, a dialogue. We will hear from a speaker and we will also have conversations um, with both Mr. Mondale and Larry Jacobs. So let me introduce to you all three of the people who will be on the stage today, and then I will invite two to the stage for now. First of all, our our honored guest for today is uh, New York uh, a columnist. Let me just say this first: columnist Charlie Savage, who is a Washington correspondent for the New York Times. He's also um, an award-winning author. He's written. He's Did he just walk in? Oh, there he is. There he is. And he is, are you taking the stage right away or I think you're taking... Okay, so you can have a seat because I believe, you're gonna see more from Charlie in a minute. Um, He's the author of of Power Wars. Many of you have read it. Um, I know because I've talked to many of you about this, we've also listened to it on tape. Um, He is also uh, the author of Takeover, which was another thought-provoking book published in 2007 that chronicles the Bush-Cheney administration's efforts to expand presidential power. You might also know that when Mr. Savage was a journalist for the um, Boston Globe, he received the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting, his national reporting, looking at President Bush and his signing statements. Uh, He has uh, definitely got a substantial track record in shining a bright light on some of the matters that we think are very central to the Mondale Dialogues, and we're so honored that he's with us today, and you will, in fact, hear more from him. Here, I I usher him to the, go sit down, Mr. Savage. We don't wanna see you yet. How was that, was that that elegant on my part? So f- for those of you, I think, I think Charlie knows I'm going to say this, for those of you who, um, who understand his literary credentials and his journalistic um, stature in the country, I, w- I would like to burnish his pop culture credibility as well. <laughs> some of us might know this, they, we might have heard of the Wizard of Floyd or the Dark Side of Oz, which is this interesting phenomena. So I see some of you nodding, some of you of a certain age, where, okay, how many of you know Pink Floyd? How many of you know Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon? How many of you know that if you play Dark Side of the Moon and listen to The Wizard, or watch The Wizard of Oz at the same time, there's this uncanny alignment between the two? Do you know this? Yeah, uh-huh, hmm see, some of us, we won't talk anymore about what we were doing when we learned that. Um, <laughs> but, but we might, might first have found that out because one young journalist in, was it Fort Wayne, Indiana? in 1995, published that and said, you know, if you listen to this album and watch this movie, this amazing thing's gonna happen. And that, in fact, was a 20-year-old Charlie Savage. So he's got, he's got pop culture credibility, too, I'm just saying. I think that's pretty impressive. Anyway, back to the, the serious matter of the day. I would um, also like to introduce to you Professor Larry Jacobs, who leads our Center for the Study of Politics and Governance. Many of you know Professor Jacobs from being on this stage. He is an expert in American political history. He understands presidential and legislative powers extensively. (laughs) He can, in fact, take the stage right now. (laughs) Well, but he may or may not. And he holds the Walter and Joan Mondale Chair in Political Studies. So let's welcome Larry Jacobs. (laughs) And this next gentleman needs no introduction. I will just say that we are oh so honored that he continues to join us here to talk with students, to talk with our community partners, to share his vast wisdom and expertise. Please join me in welcoming the 42nd Vice President of the United States, Walter Mondale.
1: Welcome.
2: That was a nice welcome, absolutely.
1: Um, So, we're going to be talking today about a topic that uh, Vice President Mondale and I have been teaching about for almost 15 years, and it's the Constitution and National Security. And uh, we started this course back during the uh, H.W. Bush presidency, and Mr. Mondale said to me, You know, I just don't know where this course is going. (laughs) And uh, it kept going.
2: We we say it's it's a course that keeps on giving.
1: (laughs) Um, And so we're going to be talking about some of those themes, and we're so grateful to have Charlie Savage here, who is probably the uh, reporter in the country, tracking down and following a lot of the issues that we've been talking about uh, for some time. And we'll start off a few minutes, and then we'll bring up uh, Mr. Savage. Mr. Mondale, in December 1974, New York Times uh, reporter Seymour Hirsch revealed covert U.S. programs. Uh, the United States Senate, which you were a member of, then uh, put together a bipartisan committee. It was chaired by Frank Church, and it included Mr. Mondale, as well as a number of prominent Republicans, including Barry Goldwater, who had been the Republican presidential candidate just 11 years before. And the Church Committee uh, got to work. What was the main findings from the Church Committee? The Church Committee, first of all, I think was
2: maybe one of the best examples in modern history of bipartisanship at its best. I mean, this is, these were senators from across the political spectrum and we, but we all agreed that there needed to be an accountability for the abuse of what we thought were the abuses of power by the executive branch and So, this church committee was established um, and uh, it operated for about two years. And even today, almost 40 years later, that report that we compiled is maybe the single best Mm -hmm. uh, study of what secret, secret agencies do uh, in, in America. Um, part of it was possible because J. Uh, Edgar Hoover had just died. And so he wasn't in there objecting to us the way he w- certainly would have been. And we were able to get into his records, we were able to get into the records of the Bureau and the other agencies, uh, basically without restriction. And this allowed us to complete a um, a study, an investigation of the private exercise of public executive power. Yeah, and um, um, I'm very proud of it, and uh, it's it's had a lot to do with with how we've tried to climb out of this hole that we uh, developed and explained in the, in the Church Committee's report.
1: One of your findings uh, were that all sorts of law-abiding American citizens were being spied on. Yes. Um, this included uh, a very active effort, an intensive effort to neutralize and essentially launch a war against Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I think most of you have heard this, but
2: It it was really astounding when we came across those records that showed that uh, Hoover thought that King was a a security threat. Where he got that, I don't know, but he did. And he wanted to, well first he wanted to pick, he wanted to pick a civil rights leader, (laughs) Martin Luther King, uh, to replace Martin Luther King. Uh, and um, this is one of the uh, astounding things that came out of this, that, that our government could be so detached from reality that we would have a head of the FBI make a decision that, Je- that uh, Martin Luther King was a security threat and, and have him operate on that without any accountability whatsoever. This was, there are several other examples. Uh, we um, we read everybody's mail that was sent overseas. Uh, and we did a lot of checking on individuals without any authority, without <laughs> any warrants or any uh, court authority or anything. It was just, whatever they wanted to do was about what was going on there. And I think, I think that the report w- shocked people, but also led to some reforms.
1: There was an extraordinary record of hearings that uh, Senator Mondale put together. Frank Church, who was nominally the head of the committee, decided to run for president. And a lot of the work, particularly on the domestic side, fell to uh, Senator Mondale and his staff. And there there's a remarkable set of hearings that Mr. Mondale, Senator Mondale conducted. Uh, One of them involved the director of the FBI, Clarence Kelly, when Senator Mondale asked the director of the FBI if they were following the law when they were pursuing these programs. And here's what the director said. Sometimes you have to give up some rights to protect others. Senator Mondale, that's fine. Would you tell me which rights you're giving up?
2: was the
1: end of that. <laughs> the director then said, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> this is a classic case of how Senator Mondale could demolish a witness with one simple question. Um, so which, with the church committee, there was a number of recommendations. Some of them was, were to establish congressional oversight by creating for the first time intelligence committees in the House and the Senate. Uh, there was also an effort to restore uh, the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution to make sure that privacy uh, was protected. And one of the main avenues for, for doing this was uh, an act known as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, that Senator Mondale started and the Vice President Mondale then uh, ushered through the agencies in the White House uh, a few years later. And the beauty of this act, and one of the reasons it's remained a kind of seminal part of conversations about the Constitution and security was that it did try to create a balance between the two.
2: Yes, and we we thought we had. this. Uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was a new court. It was designed to provide some protections against abuse while the government did what they had to do to investigate abuses. It was... Um, it was a court that operated basically in secrecy. It, um, it tried to fill in the gap that was created uh, and which had occurred, had b- been operating in, in, um, in terms of abuse over all those years that we were studying. And this was our attempt to try to get it, get it solved. I would say it got off to a good start. Uh, I would say it's been less effective in the later years.
1: And this was part of a series of efforts in the 1970s to rein in what had been described as the Imperial Presidency. (laughs) The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is one part. Uh, The War Powers Resolution, which was aimed at uh, restraining presidential use of military forces into imminent or active uh, situations of combat or potential combat was another one and there was, there were a series of others so you could think of this as the pendulum swing away from the imperial presidency or more assertive uh, Congress
2: and we we thought we had solved the problem and that's a good argument for not staying in government too long <laughs> because it it slowly lost its stroke and now while it's still important it's Nowhere near what we had in mind.
1: So let's invite up our honored guest, yes. Charlie
2: Savage. Where have you been? <laughs> we needed
1: you. Charlie, you're like Mick, uh, Mick Jagger now. You just pull up the mic a little closer. There you go. There you go. Um, So you've been listening to this conversation, and you're an author, I know you know this period well. How do you situate what uh, Senator Mondale and Vice President Mondale were were up to, was up to, uh, with what you're seeing
3: today? So let me start by just saying thank you for having me here. It's a real honor, and thank you all for coming out to listen to us today. This is the topic of basically my life's work in journalism, at least the last 19 years, and probably for the rest of my career. So it's wonderful to see so many people who are interested in the same issues, which even predating our current presidency, I think going back to 9-11, a lot of things we thought were settled and had been settled, including in this period in the late 70s, (coughs) have been reopened after the 9-11 attacks involving national security, civil liberties, and the rule of law, and remain open to this day. Uh, So my immediate reaction is, to want to help people understand that, uh, I think you mentioned the word pendulum, this is part of a larger set of structural tensions that have been unleashed in this country basically since the end of World War II, when instead of demobilizing, as had happened after every previous conflict, uh, as we segued into the Cold War, we had a large standing army remain in place deployed at bases around the world, and this gave presidents a lot of power to uh, carry out military action without having to go to Congress to ask for an army to be raised, and in the period of threat of the Cold War in the sense that at any moment we could all be annihilated in a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, a sense that the president as commander-in-chief had uh, of necessity uh, from the world in which we now found ourselves, uh, the need for and therefore the existence of vast inherent powers to do whatever he thought necessary to protect national security unilaterally and without regard, uh, without any need for Congress to authorize specific steps, and indeed, the power often to act even in defiance of apparent legal restraints Congress had enacted. And this is a phenomenon that Arthur Schlesinger Jr. later called the imperial presidency. It was not limited to one, a president of one party or the other, but it has spanned both of them, and Grew for a generation, peaking with Nixon, was broken on the back of Watergate, on the back of the disaster of the Vietnam War, and on the back of the Church Committee and its revelations of intelligence abuses under presidents of both parties uh, going back 20, 30 years. And there was a period of Congressional resurgence in which Congress was uh, reasserting its institutional role and in playing checks and balances in this country, trying to frame and constrain and regulate executive power for, to fit the modern world so, such that it would, the president could do what he needed to do, but without acting just dis- utterly at his own discretion, without anyone second guessing and preventing abuses. And that's where laws like FISA, which you've been talking about, came from. That period came to an end in the 1980s, with the election of Ronald Reagan, and there was a re- gradual reassertion of executive power, including President Clinton, and uh, then peaking, I think, with the Bush administration, the Bush and Cheney administration, and the post-9/11 response, uh, which had then continued through the Obama administration, uh, as President Obama did not curtail and roll back and dismantle the war on terror as much as his 2008 campaign rhetoric suggested he might. Uh, and now he ended up unexpectedly to himself bequeathing a set of powers and practices that he had essentially curated and normalized and right-sized in his view, not to Hillary Clinton, who he thought would be his successor, but to Donald Trump, and that's the world we live in now. Trump may be, to to wrap this up, uh, provoking Congress in ways (coughs) that Uh, Do not seem to matter right now, but after Trump is no longer president whether that's two years from now or six years from now Could lead to a second period like the 1970s It appears that there is great interest in enacting a new set of legal constraints to respond to the various uh, norm violations of the Trump era and whether the next president is willing to sign into law Uh, constraints that would tie his or her own hand in response to what the current president has done and immediate predecessors remains to be seen. But I think the potential for that is there. Mr. Mondale, you've talked and
1: written about the ratcheting up of presidential power in much the way that uh, Charlie Savage has just described it. Your um, kind of catching phrase is that when presidents leave their office, they put a loaded gun on the table
2: yeah, and that's, that's try to force a continuation of their policies uh, simply by pulling the trigger. Um, that, that is a nightmare to me, and it should be a nightmare to every American. Uh, that Constitution that was adopted, it provided for checks and balances over the use of executive power and of war powers is essential to the health of every one of us. And I hope that um, during the course of this discussion, we can see the need for uh, identifying this issue and strengthening it in terms of accountability of of the executive branch.
1: Uh, Charlie Savage, let me come back to you and see if we could make this a bit more concrete. It's a little abstract so far. Um, we have been um, uh, very interested in your reporting um, during the Trump years, and you've written some really quite compelling stories, um, for instance, about the conversations that have been going on in the White House with regard to how to authorize a unilateral decision by President Trump to strike Iran. This was with regard to few weeks or months back when John Bolton was in the White House, he's no longer there. But the conversation and the whispering behind the scenes that you were reporting on, I think is quite telling. Could you tell us a little bit about how the White House might justify uh, taking the unilateral decision to go to war with Iran or at least strike it militarily?
3: Certainly. So this is obviously a a recurring tension going back to the Bush years. regarding, focused generally on Iran's nuclear program. Can the U.S., should the U.S. bomb its nuclear sites, its reactors, its uranium enrichment facilities, uh, or, and if so, does the President need to go to Congress for that, or can the President just do it? The Obama-Iran deal seemed to preclude the need for that. Trump, of course, withdrew from that deal, and now with the attacks on the Saudi oil refineries just in the last few days, it looks like we're back on the cusp of something here. And if we are, the question is, can Trump attack Iran with, on his own say-so or does he need to go to Congress? And we have been tracking some chatter uh, about this question. The, so the one theory that they are surely banding around inside the executive branch is that the president has the authority to attack another country without going to Congress. Inherently, because he is the commander in chief. (laughs) And presidents of both parties in the last generation, very much including Obama with Libya in 2011, and Clinton with Kosovo in 1999, so this is not a partisan issue, have put forward increasingly the theory that presidents have inherent authority to launch limited strikes against other countries to serve American interests. Not a question of self-defense, but just if the president decides it would be in the American interest to have this attack. So that, constrained though by the notion that it has to be limited, it can't be a full-fledged major war. The more extreme version of this, which has been embraced by Attorney General William Barr back when he was in the George H.W. Bush administration on the cusp of the Persian Gulf War, is that it doesn't even matter if it's limited or not. The president has the authority to start a major ground war on his own because he's the commander in chief, uh, as Truman did in Korea. Uh, That is a more, uh, you don't find bipartisan support anymore for that theory. You find only Republican support for that theory, basically, even though it was Truman who inaugurated it. Uh, Kind of idiosyncratic, but Bill Barr is the most important lawyer in the current administration, and he holds it. The second version of this, and this was part of the chatter we got, was maybe they can claim that Congress has already authorized war with Iran by authorizing war against the perpetrators of 9-11 19 years ago because the law, the authorization for use of military force does not say the enemy is Al-Qaeda or the Taliban regime that harbored it. It says the enemy is whoever the president determines was responsible for 9-11 or aided those who did. And there's a few ties between the Iranian regime and Al-Qaeda, some members of Al-Qaeda got into Afghanistan in the 90s by crossing Iranian territory. Maybe that's enough for, for Trump to say, I determine that this congressional authorization extends to Iran. A few members of Al-Qaeda have been living in Iran, mostly in prison, but not being turned over to the US for justice. Maybe that's enough to say the Iranians were helping Al-Qaeda and Trump could say, I determine that this law applies to this situation. It is a recurring issue, to wrap this up, that Congress has often written laws that delegate broad authority to the president to use in exigent circumstances where the president determines that a situation exists. There is a national emergency, therefore I can do this. There is a national security, like build a wall on the Mexican border using Pentagon funds that were not appropriated for that purpose. There is a threat to American steel from Canada. Uh, a national security threat. Canada is a national security threat. I determine that, therefore I can impose tariffs where otherwise I could not. And this AUMF law is one of those. It doesn't have criteria for what the president must uh, find, uh, what, what must exist before the president can say, you're part of this law. It does not say judges are allowed to second guess. The president has raw authority to just say that it is so. So there's two ways in which the Obama Trump administration may, Uh, proclaim that Trump has the authority to start a war with Iran without going to Congress, and the question is whether they will do so. Mr. Mondi, you were in the White House, of
1: course, uh, and you faced, you know, the usual number of crises. Is this your view about how uh, presidents ought to decide about going to war or committing U.S. military forces? No, it is not. Um,
2: I think the Constitution uh, expects a president who wants to go to war or start a fight uh, except in self-defense to go to the Congress to get authority to do so. And there's a reason for that because uh, you know wars are always nice things to start. Our generation knows what I'm talking about. And they're tough things to stop. And more than that, Young kids get killed in those wars. And, and um, there should be, our founders wanted there to be some fundamental division of power. And the president may ask for it, but the Congress had to approve it. If the Congress didn't approve it, that became a political issue and the public would divide, decide that over, uh, debate those over maybe the years. But the idea that a president could just say, "Well, um, I have um, authority to defend the country, even outside of, of self-defense," um, uh, I have I have the authority to uh, do what I want. I'm the president of the United States. Here, I, I think that's a that's a terrible thing. Um, I spent uh, all those years in in government and in the White House and so on. You've all been studying this stuff. Um, And what I hear from more people than you is that we've got to stop going into all these wars. We're doing too much of it. We're not thinking it through. We're getting into these um, international wars. and uh, we're not thinking them through it's, it's only later we find out what we've, we've gotten into. Um, so I think our founders were very wise in dividing this power. And I think we should not allow a generation of politicians to redefine the constitution to suit their ends.
1: Charlie Savage, reaction?
3: Well, uh, so I want to say, make clear if it wasn't already, that my description of the conversation that executive branch lawyers have and are having and have had under recent presidents of both parties about the scope and limits or lack thereof of executive power is not an endorsement of their theories as legitimate, or either uh, as an empirical matter or as a normative matter. Uh, and I the critique that the vice president just made of the escalation of executive power through basically secret legal memos for the most part, uh, secret at the time they're written, maybe people find out about them 15 years later, uh, and how they build on each other, a generation of politicians, as you say, I would say a generation of politically appointed attorneys as much as anything, uh, is merely a description. This is the world in which we're living, this is what Washington is and has been, uh, and uh, the critique is a very legitimate one.
1: So uh, there's another perspective out there, or other perspectives. Um, if you kind of go back to the Constitution, Mr. Mondale is channeling James Madison the view of checks and balances. The other character at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 was Alexander Hamilton, and uh, despite the wonderful play that's been based on his career, he had some very controversial ideas, um, both when he was in the Washington administration and when he was at the writing of a, the Constitution and then the years afterwards. Um, and Dick Cheney is one of the people who's picked up on Hamilton's argument that the executive has uh, energy and implied powers. So Vice President Mondale is looking for the enumerated powers that Congress has to declare war, and the skip around that has been uh, Hamilton and then Cheney and others arguing, no, the president has this vast reservoir of inherent implied powers. Here's what Dick Cheney said uh, shortly after they were reelected, and uh, this is in December 2005. In the day and age we live in, the nature of the threats we face, the president of the United States needs to have his constitutional powers unimpaired in the area of national security policy. Charlie Savage,
3: does that capture kind of a bipartisan view among many (laughs) in Washington? I think it's certainly true that Democrats and liberals like executive power a lot more when they hold the White House. And Republicans and conservatives are much more skeptical of it when Democrats hold the White House. This is a place where everyone is hypocritical based on the politics of the moment. Uh, And that's one of the reasons that reform is hard, because someone's always in the White House. If there ever is real reform on these sorts of things, I think it has to be anticipatory. Like the moment to do it is when no one knows who's going to win the next election, that kind of thing. Especially if you have a a two-term president coming to a close. Um, Rather than, although it's true that Hamilton uh, had some expansive language in the Federalist Papers about the need for a vigorous executive. I think a lot of that has been taken out of context. A lot of that was written in the context of a, a, whether there should be one president or like a committee of six presidents across the executive branch and explaining why you wanted one person in charge of wielding executive power. It doesn't really tell you how much executive power that person slash committee was supposed to be wielding. And it's been, those little phrases get plucked out and used to ends towards which they were not intended. But I do think it is the case that since since this thing I talked about earlier, the the end of the World War II, the segue to the Cold War, the rise of the fear of nuclear holocaust, Mm -hmm. the justification for a more expansive version of commander-in-chief power has been the world, the modern world is too dangerous, too globalized, too immediate to think about, well, next time Congress is in session, we could go back and ask them whether they thought legislation might be needed. You have to have someone As a matter of just the reality of the modern world who's in a position to act quickly when there's an exigent circumstance and that may in fact be true and uh, what an irony of all this speaking of hypocrisy is what that suggests is that the meaning of the Constitution changes based on the world in which we live. It's an evolving, living constitution. And this, we generally hear that phrase in matters of social policy. Is there abortion rights in, implicitly in the constitution? Is there a right to uh, you know, have a criminal defense lawyer appointed if you're an indigent person, these sort of things where conservatives say the constitution, we're originalists, the constitution means what it was written and you have to amend it, or if you want to change it and liberals say no, we want a living constitution that responds to the modern world. This tends to be a place where that flips and national security hawks and conservatives want the original constitution uh, where Congress has all, all the war power and liberals want the, uh, uh, the, the, the originalist version uh, where uh, you, you see what I'm saying. Sorry, <laughs> fumbling over myself. But everyone, a lot of arguments in Washington about politics and law tend to be situational which is one of the reasons it's so hard to find a principle that really anyone stands for all across the board. So Mr. Mondo.
2: Can I I just raise a humble little voice? I've been around for a long, long time and I took the same position all those years, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't have to be just cheap politics. I think these are pretty fundamental issues we're dealing with here. And whether it's Obama or uh, Clinton or Carter, or Bush, it, it, if, if you're starting a war without authority, you should have to go to the Congress and get, a, get it.
1: And I think we'll all be better off if we did. Um, We've been talking about some of the cases that you've been tracking yes. in your reporting. One of them is a fascinating case in Somalia. Did you know that the US was engaged in what could be described as a massive war in Somalia? Have you been tracking this? not a lot of Americans know about. In fact, for a while, there weren't many members of Congress that even knew about some of the scope of it. Um, and your reporting shows that this began under Obama, continued, uh, perhaps escalated
3: under President Trump. How's that happening? So in, in Somalia, the Horn of Africa, there is a Islamist extremist group called al-Shabaab, uh, which are terrible people. and kill innocent civilians all the time and are awful to women in, in all the ways that Islamist groups can be. And uh, they used to be in power, and then they were sort of ousted and became an insurgent group. They have some ties to Al-Qaeda, they're both Sunni insurgents, but they're sort of different as well. Their interest is controlling Somalia, not global, the global war on terror. They've never attacked in the United States, for example. I'm sure in Minneapolis, maybe more of you are familiar with Al-Shabaab because of the Somali exile community. A lot of people were fleeing the violence from that particular group. Uh, It is the case that under Obama, the United States began uh, carrying out airstrikes, targeting specific high-level operatives of Al-Shabaab at first, and then it ratcheted out to declaring Somalia to be uh, basically a war zone such that there didn't have to be individualized targeting decisions anymore and the military could take the shots against Shabaab that it wanted to. This has been justified as authorized by the 9-11 law because the Obama administration, not the Trump administration, decided that there were sufficient links between Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda that for legal purposes, Congress had authorized war in Somalia against the Shabaab and there was no need to go ask for a new authorization of force. And its uh, I wouldn't say it's a major, major war in that it's maybe like every week or so there's an airstrike that kills one or two or in some cases 100 or 150 people in Som- Somalia and then it's quiescent again. Um, and that's just been going on and is this sort of slow burn and never makes the headlines and it just continues.
1: One of the most interesting uh, stories that you've um Uh, authored in the the recent period has been your survey Mm -hmm. of Democratic presidential candidates. And if you haven't seen the story, it's worth looking at. Uh, Charlie Savage had interviewed uh, presidential candidates in the past, and then he went back and interviewed Democratic presidential candidates. And one of the um, sections of your story focused on Joe Biden in 2007, before he was in the White House and then... Uh, in the recent period now that he's running for president himself. What did you
3: discover? That's right, so ever since 2007, every four years, I ask presidential candidates seeking their party's nomination to a bunch of tough questions intended to get them to lay out the scope and limits of their understanding of executive power before voters decide which of them to entrust with the White House. The notion is, after all these issues that were raised by Bush and Cheney, where the president said in secret it, because he was the commander-in-chief, he could override laws about wire, the FISA law we were talking about earlier, about needing a warrant to wiretap on U.S. soil or anti-torture laws and so forth. Uh, what do you believe? Can the commander-in-chief override statutory limits when it's a national security matter? And so forth and so on. When can you go to war without Congress and when, when do you have to go to Congress? Uh, so it, Biden was a particularly interesting character because he was running for president in 2007, as a longtime senator, and then he's running, obviously, for president now, As after spending eight years in the White House as the vice president. And you could see how your v- philosophy of executive power evolves when you've spent 30 years in the legislative branch and then when you spend eight years in the executive branch. Uh, let me hasten to say that I do not think Vice President Mondale's views did evolve despite his four years in the executive branch. But one of the clearest examples of this was in 2007, Uh, Senator Biden said, expressed the view that Senator, or Vice President Mondale expressed. The President of the United States can only authorize an attack in self-defense without going to Congress. Otherwise, has to go to Congress to start in a war. And then flash forward to this year, and former Vice President Biden says, it is well established that a President (laughs) can authorize an attack when it serves American interests, as long as it's something short of a full-scale war. The totally incompatible answers, but his new answer reflects the position that the Obama administration took in 2011 when President Obama authorized uh, American participation in NATO's war over Libya without congressional authorization, an act that also violated not only what Senator Biden had said in 2007, but what Senator Obama had said in 2007. It does seem that once you're in the Oval Office, the world looks differently in terms of I feel like I need to act and maybe I'll have a more expansive interpretation of my authority in this murky area of separation of powers. Thank you. Um, We've got a number of excellent questions here from our friends in the
1: audience. Mr. Mondale, here's a question for you. Is it true that the Carter-Mondale administration is the only modern administration that did not have a war going back to World War II?
2: We didn't have one. Um, I'm just trying to calculate what happened elsewhere. But let, let me just stick with that. We didn't, we didn't have a war. Uh, Carter had been um, a commander uh, in the Navy. He knew what that was about. I had been a corporal in the Army. So I, you can imagine how fully uh, formed I was. But but I, we we um, we did not once uh, play that game with executive power. And I remember the last day we were in office, the I won't say which agency came over and wanted us to prove approve a, 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 a intelligence and a, a military operation in one of the Latin American countries. And the president said, what do you think? And I said, Mr. President, we've got only one more day to go. Let's say no. So we
1: did. So we have a pure record. Thank you. Um, we've got several questions here about the role of the Supreme Court. Um, we're talking about the law and the Constitution. And of course, the role of the court is to uh, uh, review uh, decisions by the president obviously laws as to whether they fit the Constitution. Justice O'Connor in a decision made during the Bush administration said uh, the following, we have long since made clear that a state of war is not a blank check for the president when it comes to the rights of the nation's citizens. Um, Charlie Savage, help us sort that out. What's the role of the court? Here's Justice O'Connor just you know, 15 years ago uh, espousing a fairly clear view about the way the the Supreme Court restrains when necessary.
3: I'll say two things about that. The first is, in a great sign of how ambiguous and murky this area can be, that line you just quoted came from an opinion in which Justice O'Connor upheld the indefinite detention without trial of an American citizen who had been deemed an enemy combatant. (laughs) So it may not mean what that line taken out of context suggests it means. She just said, well, he's gotta get a hearing to make sure he's an enemy combatant, but he doesn't need a trial. That's the Hamdi case, uh, her plurality opinion. More generally, the problem with a lot of this stuff is that it never reaches the courts. The courts never decide the issues on the merits for 95% of these kinds of issues because they decide that no one has standing no one has standing to bring this case, or this is not the type of matter that's fit for judicial review. This is a political question that has to be worked out between Congress and the executive branch. So for example, a couple years ago, a member of the military who had been deployed to the Middle East to help fight ISIS filed a lawsuit against the Obama administration to say that there was no legal authority to fight ISIS because Congress had not approved a war against the Islamic State. Uh, Obama had claimed that the 9-11 authorization against Al-Qaeda could be stretched to cover the war against the Islamic State in Syria. And rather, the the courts ended up dismissing that case without deciding whether it was true or not that the AUMF law could be legitimately extended to cover ISIS because they said this soldier who was being deployed to fight in that war did not have standing, no one has standing to sue. Sometimes Congress tries to sue on these things uh, most recently, the House sued over President Trump's uh, invocation of emergency powers to spend more money on his border wall than Congress had uh, uh, approved. And what happened, c- the judge throughout the case, they said even the House of Representatives as a whole does not have standing to sue. This is a political question. They are appealing, that may not be the ultimate outcome. But the general issue is most of the time, no one as an individual has his rights or her rights affected to the extent that courts weighed into these things. Detention matters are a rare exception, but in that case, with Justice O'Connor's plurality opinion, the court upheld the de- the detention without trial of an American. He was then released. He was then released. And then he As a matter of policy discretion, not as a matter of law. Yeah.
1: Um, he left the country, went to Saudi Arabia. Yep. In any case, Mr. Mondi, let me come back. You've been making a pretty strong um, case for following the Constitution, um, and presidents have been clearly stretching or maybe, in your view, breaking um, uh, the constitutional rules and, and clearly enumerated powers that Congress has. Where is Congress? Isn't the president's power really a function of Congress is asleep on the job?
2: It's asleep.
1: Um, the um, you know, I, th- I think there's some people in the
2: new House that want to uh, challenge these issues on legal grounds. The Senate has been protecting the President from any such challenges. Uh, it's a, um, a kind of a stalled situation now between the House and the Senate. And so the President is running free, I think. Um, I would, I would, I don't, I, I'm very sorry about that because I don't like these issues to become political. They are some political. But, but this, this is life and death for the American people. And we should be able to say no to dumb wars before they start. Uh, a lot of us been around a long, long time. We've heard these arguments. It doesn't, wouldn't hurt at all if the Congress were required to
1: say yes or no on these wars. Now, you've heard over the years, complaints, and let's put a name to it, from uh, Congressman Cheney when he was in Congress, and then Vice President Cheney, and now (laughs) ex-Vice President Cheney, being just one of many who say, well, what you're talking about endangers America because we are then not responding, we are not protecting the country, Because we're waiting for a slow, cumbersome, sometimes um, inactive Congress to step up to the plate. Isn't that too dangerous?
2: You know, I don't want to be political today, but Cheney is a right wing wacko on this issue. There's there's just
1: there's there's no there's no basis for it. He just he just preaches it. You know, I was struck. I was looking at the church committee report, which I recommend to everyone. I actually, as a, um, as, a as a very weird teenager, I actually purchased the, <laughs> the church committee report. It still sits in my office, and I showed it to Mr. Mondale, and he just shook his head and said, "You had a troubled childhood." Um, <laughs> Maybe true. But I was looking at it. And I was really struck by the membership of the church committee. Here you have uh, Frank Church, who was. Soon after being appointed, decides to run uh, to be the Democratic nominee for the uh, as president. Um, you've got Walter Mondale, and you've got some other Democrats. and On the Republican side, you have Barry Goldwater, who had been libertarian, probably the most conservative Republican candidate in in, in some time. Just 11 years before, Howard Baker, who would be a titan in the Republican Party in the Senate. What's going on? Then,
2: then we had a, a wonderful senator from Maryland. Uh, Help me with his name. Late was it Matthias? Huh? Matthias. Matthias. Wonderful, wonderful senator, Republican, moderate, and so we had we had balance all the way through there. I th- I think that Mansfield
1: picked that committee with great care because mm-hmm. he knew all of us. And did did. Is it possible, in your view, to have a church? We have a couple of questions. Like, why not have a church committee today?
2: Well, I'm I'm for it, but I'm I'm worried about whether you can put it together the way uh, Mike Mansfield did it. I'm just not sure that there's people around that would would do it. But I'd like to try. I'd like to see if you could do it,
3: Charlie Savage. I'll just say two things about that. One is, I think. Uh, it's, it's no secret that politics have changed a lot since the 1970s. Liberal Republicans have disappeared, conservative Democrats have disappeared, and the, the dynamics of polarization make it a lot harder to work across party lines on issues. Uh, everyone has to revert to their team or face a primary challenge, and that is not just about the Republican Party. It's about both parties. Well, on the other hand, though, as a note of sorry, well, as a note of optimism, a few years ago, after the Snowden revelations or Snowden leaks. There was a scrambling of party lines in the response to that, and that was the closest thing I think we've seen to the church committee intelligence abuse responses of the 70s, where you had uh, some Republicans joining, uh, like James Sensenbrenner, the Republican congressman, former Judiciary Committee chairman from Wisconsin, the neighboring state here, joining forces with libertarian-minded liberal Democrats who said this goes too far for the government to keep a, secretly keep a permanent record of every American's phone calls, including purely domestic ones. And you had some Democrats, uh, including some party leadership, uh, joining forces with some Republicans who had the more hawkish sort of pro-intelligence security state point of view, trying to prevent reform. And it was a rare, and the ultimate was a compromise bill called the USA Freedom Act, which... Uh, allowed the government to keep collect, uh, accessing to people's phone records when it needed to, to to do this certain kind of analysis, but it wasn't itself gonna hold them all. It was gonna let them stay in the fans of the phone companies and only look at the ones that needed to do this thing. And that, by the way, is gonna expire this December and there's a big fight about whether the whole thing is just gonna go away. But that the politics surrounding the Freedom Act after the Snowden leaks was a rare moment that looked a lot like a echo of the church committee in which people did not seem to be acting predictably according to whether there was an R or a D after their name, but according to their own maybe uh, personal interests or principles in terms of how to balance security and individual liberty and the rule of law in a way that looked a little bit more like how things used to be. That just seems to be more the aberration than the rule these days.
2: that's, That's true, and I'd like to say, well, let's try again. We had uh, what's the name of the congressman again? Jim Sensenbrenner. Yeah, he, right-wing Republican congressman from uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yep. He came before our class. He was terrific. So, so don't count him out. He's retiring, of course. <laughs> well, we got several good years out of him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you know, just listening to this, it, it could sound a little depressing. I and mean, I don't think anyone's going to leave here feeling elated at uh, what's being discussed. And so Charlie Savage, I want to piece together a few storylines and see if you would agree that there's a path here, at least for people who want to you know, see ways in which concrete effort can be made uh, to get back to this balancing of security and the Constitution. Well, You mentioned one case, which was the White House's effort now to push for reauthorizing the phone surveillance program. Um, The part about that that I find interesting is that the National Security Agency had thrown up its hands and saying this program they've now come to appreciate after all these years is hard to administer and they were actually collecting uh, cell phone records for perhaps millions of people inadvertently despite various rules have been established. Is that a sign of, of potential realization of the reality of the limits? Um, is there some hope to be put on that or not?
3: You know, it's not my role to frame this in terms of hope and normative issues, but just descriptively, the, um, yeah, it's. I think that after Snowden, the intelligence community, uh, vis-a-vis Americans' rights and Americans' communications, so this is sometimes the FBI, sometimes the NSA, all overseen by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence that was created after 9-11, came to a realization that doing things in secret that affect Americans' rights based on dubious interpretations of the law was not a good idea because it would come out and it would threaten things that they needed. They thought really thought they needed to be doing uh, would ge- become collateral damage in uproar over things that maybe weren't necessary. It was sort of a, a new generation learning the same lesson that they were taught by the Church Committee in the late 1970s, and they came to the realization that it, you know if they had just been open about collecting people's phone records and gone con- to Congress for clear authority to do so after 9/11, rather than coming up with a d- twisted interpretation of the law that couldn't withstand scrutiny once it came out, It probably would have been okay. Probably Congress would have said, okay, let's try it, and there wouldn't have been this uproar. And it was the secrecy uh, that caused them all the problems. You know, the cover-up is worse than the crime, is the famous phrase. Um, and in this current situation, I think that they have decided that this program, the remnants of this program, is not really useful to them. It's really expensive. They keep messing up with the rules. It causes all these headaches. It causes... It's a distraction from other things, and the fight over reauthorizing something that they're not really getting any use out of anyway, threatens other tools that are also up for reauthorization that they do really want to keep. So they want to get rid of this. They they just are making the expedient decision that let's not because they become civil libertarians, but just because they know that it's difficult to get anything through this Congress. It's such a dysfunctional Congress that if they can remove this controversy, they can get this other thing through, perhaps, and go on with their jobs, and the, at least in the John Bolton era, Trump White House, there was a sort of a, as best as I can tell, a kind of machismo based, why would we ever admit that this program is a bad program or a useless program, or why would we ever give up authority even if we're not using the program now because we can't make it work? Let's keep the authority on the books because it's weak to give up authority, to shrink executive power. Uh, Whether the post-Bolton Trump administration will continue the position that the Bolton-era Trump administration took in telling Congress they want that law reauthorized even though the program doesn't work is an open question.
1: So let me just give you the Jacob spin on uh, what you just said about the NSA associating a cost to having a controversial program that wasn't delivering a whole lot, Yeah, which is your reporting, that is, they see a cost because they know that Charlie Savage is there, uh, other reporters are there, um, and that if they continue with the program that is in clear violation of um, the limitations created by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, um, that that's gonna be uh, something that's gonna put a, a negative spotlight on them.
3: Well, that's very flattering. I mean, in this case, the only reason we know about it is not because Charlie Savage was there, but it's because Edward Snowden broke the law to tell the people about it. And now he's a fugitive in Russia and uh, facing a lead, spending the rest of his life in prison for it if he ever does come back here. And so that doesn't seem like a very satisfactory system for maintaining checks and balances either. Uh, to rely on the here, next to Work with me, Charlie. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking Sorry. for a few. <laughs> we a few had weirdos. dinner last night, and we had a th- similar conversation with a small group of people. And at the end, they were saying, "Say something optimistic." <laughs> and I was like, oh. Mr. Monier, let me see if you can help me here. Uh, <laughs> one of
1: the stories that Charlie Savage um, has brilliantly reported is that the FBI and Department of Homeland Security was compiling a watch list with over a million people on it, included. Uh, well, more than 4,500 Americans that we know about, Um, they were put onto what's known as a terrorist screening database uh, who were considered to be known or suspected terrorists. A federal judge recently has raised questions about that and um, is provoking a real battle within the court system about whether this meets constitutional standards. Judicial check, is that a, a way in which we can see kind of a pushback against this accretion of power by the executive?
2: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, um, if um, that is as you describe it, and I believe it is, it sounds like an outrageous abuse of uh, secret governmental power directed against Americans. I didn't author anybody to come and look at my private files. And that's sort of a the essence of being an American. You may, you may be a big shot in Washington, but you're not as big as I am. I'm, the, I'm an American citizen. And I don't think we should let those uh, distinctions slide away easily.
1: Charlie Savage, uh, in one of his opinions, Justice Kennedy, when he was still in the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. uh, said the following, liberty and security can be reconciled. And in our system, they are reconciled within the framework of the
3: law. Does that work today? Well, there's a, there's a lot of people who are trying very hard to make it work. And a lot of my, my own work has been devoted towards trying to understand and explain to ordinary people, voters, the work that happens behind closed doors in Washington by lawyers generally, who are trying to make sense of what the law is and what is required of the government in all these novel issues that since 9-11 have reopened questions uh, that we thought were settled or that because the laws were not written for the situations in which we find ourselves, whether that's surveillance laws that were written for an analog era and are now only you know don't map on to digital technologies very well or understandings of the 4th amendment in that area or understandings of limits on war powers where you're not talking about sending ground forces in but just talking about ungoverned spaces where you might be able to send a drone in at no risk to american forces to take care of an individual threat is that war or not war there's tremendously interesting and difficult dilemmas raised across this whole range of issues of individual liberty, rule of law, national security, war power, secrecy, presidential authority, uh, and what the Constitution means and is going to mean in the 21st century. Just because these things are hard doesn't mean that people aren't trying to figure it out and make it work and achieve balances that are satisfying. It's hard. It's made harder by the dysfunctional politics in which we find ourselves, the extreme polarization, the, the breakdown of con- congressional or the paralysis of congressional oversight in many cases. But uh, I haven't given up hope for this country, and I think a lot of people haven't either. Uh, but we're on a journey together whose destination is yet undetermined. So I'm
1: looking through a lot of the questions from the audience. And one of the most consistent themes is genuine fear about our democracy. And I would say the question is, Mr. Mondale, is American democracy in retreat? Is autocratic politics around the corner? Are you concerned about that?
2: No, I th- I think uh, I keep hearing these uh, doomsday um, guesses about where democracy's, democracy our democracy go, go, is going. I think we're we've got problems now, but I think that the American people are onto it. I think the law is so clear the. Principle of checks and balances, so uh, compelling that, um, and we got to we got to continue to be alert, but I but I think there's every reason to be, feel
1: optimistic about it. And, and you were in office, of course, um, near the height of your power and position in Washington during the Watergate era when uh, we found out about what the Nixon campaign and then eventually the Nixon White House was involved in. Did you hear similar sorts of uh, angst about whether American democracy was? Yes,
2: but, but I think the water grade experience proves my point. I mean, the American people got aroused by the uh, rumors and by the evidence that was coming out, and they, they saw to it that it was corrected.
1: Charlie Savage, see, this is the kind of optimism I'm looking for. <laughs> if, if, if you could
3: work with me just a little bit here. I was, I was saying later, I was joking later, uh, I'm a Chicago Bears fan from Northern Indiana at this table full of Minnesota Vikings that? fans. And yeah. I was like, my optimism note should have been, Aaron Rodgers is gonna retire soon. We can <laughs> all get behind that.
1: Um, Charlie, we've got a question here. It's a kind of a, a craft question. Your reporting depends a lot on unnamed sources, understandably. Uh, How do you decide what to believe, um, what not to believe, what motives um, make sense, what motives
3: make you alert? Uh, It's too broad a question to have a specific answer, but the question answers itself in the sense that yes, you have to be alert to understanding why someone is talking to you, what their motivation is, when you need to have a bigger versus smaller grain of salt, and uh, and there's a great need to corroborate what anyone tells you to find other people who independently say yes, that's what happened, or might, in that way that the blind, the three blind men touching the elephant, you know, at different spots all have a totally different understanding of what they're encountering. Uh, one of the pleasures of working at the New York Times is that we have. A very large staff of very excellent reporters, who all have their own specialties and their own sources and their own uh, lines of sight into what is happening inside the black box of government. And w- more and more, we are working collaboratively. And uh, you know that you used to rarely see more than one name on a newspaper story, and now it's routine to see four names on a newspaper yeah. story. It's it's a changing culture. Of I heard this from my guy. What do you hear from your woman? And can you bounce this thing off of that, go back to that person and bounce this thing because now we think this is the case. And that's one of the ways in which we try very hard to avoid uh, making any mistakes that we know, because we also know that it's an environment in which fake news and the discrediting of uh, our work is, uh, anything will be seized upon to to, to attack us with. So we do not want to hand a hammer to those who are trying to undermine the idea of objective truth. Um, Charlie
1: Savage, another question from the audience. Uh, Mr. Mondale was talking about um, an era in which there was some level of bipartisan concern about the Constitution and actual conduct of uh, energetic oversight. Um, Why is it that Mitch McConnell doesn't play a larger role uh, in empowering Senate oversight of the executive branch?
3: Well, I don't wanna attack Mitch McConnell as like a, a bad guy, that's, that's not my job. Uh, I think, descriptively, he is an extremely shrewd politician, maybe one of the smartest people in Washington, in the same way that Dick Cheney was one of the smartest people in Washington. And I think he uh, has certain policy ends that he's quite interested in Including, uh, for example, stocking the courts with people who interpret the Constitution in a certain way, uh, and he works very hard to use his c- control over certain levers of power to achieve those ends. Um, that's uh, that's the that's the world. But I also, you know, he's also responding to the politics of the moment. Is, is, you know, if he was not there and someone else was Senate Majority Leader, would the Republican Caucus of let Merrick Garland get a hearing and, and actually voted him into the Supreme Court, I, I kind of tend to think they wouldn't. And the harder question is if the situation were reversed and an outgoing Republican president suddenly had a Supreme Court vacancy in a time in which Democrats had a majority of the Senate uh, and a shot at winning the White House six or eight months later, would they have voted in a very uh, a, a, a conservative nominee, or would they have held the seat open for mm-hmm. the, the election? And I, I kind of tend to think that notwithstanding the outrage that Democrats expressed, they probably would have done the same as well because that is the logic of the polarized times in which we inhabit. Uh, wh-
2: could, could I raise a point? You know, Mr. Mondo.
3: the last few years
2: um, the U.S. Congress, particularly the Senate, has walked away from the filibuster rules. And uh, some of that I supported, and in fact, I helped lead. But I always argued that we shouldn't get rid of it entirely, that it should be possible, say, for 55% of the Senate, 45% of the Senate, to be able to block action by the... Senate until they got answers or until their issues were considered, or until they ran out of their own support. Uh, we've gotten rid of all that now, and the. I think it's been at a great price. Uh, the, the House is going to do what it does, but you, with 435 members, you're not going to have a filibuster rule there. But I think. the and I I spent a lot of my years there uh, grappling with this issue, I think getting rid of the filibuster rule has been a bad mistake. I think we ought to balance it so that it's not the old uh, paralysis rule, but one that still requires uh, debate and uh, uh, discussion and uh, disclosure. I think we're stronger for that. And I think the fact that we have so enfeebled the Senate allows a single guy like this guy from Kentucky to run the place. And, and uh, I don't care if it's a Democrat. I don't, I don't like that. I mean, I, I like the way I was, be able, was able to act as a senator from Minnesota. If I didn't like something, I could just slow it down until somebody answered my questions. And I think that's the way it should be.
1: Um, I wanna thank our guests. Just say yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sir, when you ask a question, I always Mm -hmm. say yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before I get to thank our guests, I wanna make a few quick announcements. First, I wanna thank uh, Dean uh, Laura Bloomberg, who's a big supporter of this series and a big supporter of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, this does not happen unless the university gets behind it, and we are grateful for that. I want to thank Mike. I want to thank Mike Curry, who's running around, probably out of breath, for all the work he's put into making this happen. Again, it's another case where this does not happen unless someone is uh, making it happen wanna give you a heads up on a few of the programs. We have a full listing outside. Um, Tom Friedman is coming uh, September 23rd. He'll be doing a program with Gary Eichten. We are very excited about that. September 23rd, 1 p.m. Um, I think that's gonna be crowded, so you need to look into getting access to that. The 24th, uh, one of my uh, real heroes here at the university, Mary Jo Kane, who's been a leader in the discussion about women in sport for a long time is gonna be here to talk about the women's soccer team. Anyone here follow the women's soccer team? Yeah, well, this is gonna be that. We're gonna have a great program in early October on corporate civic engagement. Mid-October, one of the smartest conservatives in the country, Ramesh Ponaru, will be here uh, talking about the conservative movement in the age of Trump and after Trump. In uh, mid-November, we've got Doug Tice here talking about media bias, which is a a question a lot of us are worried about, and there's still more. I want to recognize Kate Semino, who's going to come down here and make a short announcement.
3: (laughs) Hi, everyone. It's great to see so many folks coming out today for this great conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, My name is Kate Semino with our Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, and I want to be sure to let you know that we are able to do these great programs because of contributions to our center. These are gifts through the University of Minnesota Foundation. So I want to thank our donors, our current donors, and if you like these kind of programs, if you value this type of conversation, please join us. Uh, Gifts are meaningful at every level, and they are gifts through the University of Minnesota Foundation, and we invite you to join us. Uh, Our contact information is on your program, and please get in touch. Thank you.
1: And I want to thank uh, this incredible panel, Charlie Savage, who flew out from Washington to be with us. Uh, He met with students this morning um, and is just a tremendous resource in our country. And we're just grateful to have you here. Thank you very much.
2: And I want to
1: thank Uh, Walter Mondale it's been a great honor uh, on my part and I think many of our students uh, more than 2,000 students have taken courses with them he's done this for this much money and that's Walter Mondale